From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's turnout. Part of it is less persuasion and more getting your people out. So that's why I still, I think democracy is a good way to get our people out as an issue. And I think Roe is another. That's Al Franken. He served as a U.S. Senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. He currently hosts the Al Franken podcast and has returned to his comedy roots, starring in a one-man stand-up show called The Only Former U.S. Senator, currently on tour, tour. Franken began his career at Saturday Night Live as one of the original writers when the show launched in 1975. Following decades as an entertainer, Franken became an outspoken advocate for liberal causes and a political humorist, lampooning the likes of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. We discuss the upcoming midterm elections, the value of humor in politics, and if there might be a political comeback in the cards for Franken following his Senate resignation nearly five years ago due to sexual misconduct allegations. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Eve, who asks, kind of rhetorical, but doesn't Trump and Lindsey Graham's immediate appeal to SCOTUS make it glaringly apparent that they look at the court as a partisan tool? Well, sort of interesting. I think there are a lot of reasons that we've been given over the last number of months and maybe the last few years to be concerned that the court has become a partisan tool. Among those bases are the rejection of precedent and a particularly, I think, aggressive opinion overturning Roe v. Wade that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Also, Clarence Thomas's refusal to recuse himself from matters that relate to the insurrection of January 6th, and there's some other examples as well. On the other hand, whether it's Trump or Lindsey Graham, who avails himself the opportunity to take a matter to the Supreme Court as a matter of right, I don't think that effort on its own and in a vacuum means that they view the court as a partisan tool. They may view it that way, or at least as a source of political power to accomplish things that aren't able to be accomplished in Congress or legislatively or by the executive branch. Relatedly, we got an email from Kim who says, can you help me understand what's going on with Graham and Thomas? Why did Graham send it to just Thomas? And how does Thomas get to make the decision about Graham's testimony by himself? So that's an interesting question. And not as nefarious as some people are making it out to be, at least not at this point. So obviously we're talking about the fact that Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, has been subpoenaed to testify in the ongoing investigation by the grand jury in Fulton County with respect to things that happened in connection with the election there, Graham's statements and calls that he might have made to figure out what was going on in the election, perhaps arguably to interfere with the election results or their certification. Graham is asserting under the Constitution his right under the speech or debate clause not to be questioned someplace outside the Congress. That's a real privilege. 
It's a real constitutional provision, and it's very important. The question is whether or not the conduct engaged in by Lindsey Graham actually is covered by the speech or debate clause. I believe, and I think the weight of authority supports the idea that it's not, that it wasn't a legislative function, and that he can be questioned about it. But this is the issue he's taken first to the district court, then to the Circuit Court of Appeals, and now he's gone to the Supreme Court. And in fact, you may remember, I discussed this very issue with Professor Steve Laddick on an earlier edition of Stay Tuned in Brief. The reason that Thomas has some bearing on this is when a direct appeal of that nature is made to the Supreme Court, every circuit has a Supreme Court justice assigned to it who can make a decision to issue an administrative stay and give the court, the Supreme Court, some time to consider the merits of the question. And what has happened so far here, at least as of this recording, on Tuesday, October 25th, is that Clarence Thomas has indeed imposed an administrative stay on the 11th Circuit and asked the parties to brief the matter. And then the entire court will have some time to consider Lindsey Graham's argument. It's not a decision on the merits. Clarence Thomas hasn't put a thumb on the scale in either way. And although it may be true that he should have recused himself from the matter and let some other justice make the decision about the stay, so far, we don't have evidence to say that he's done something untoward or inappropriate. And in fact, you may remember, I discussed this very issue with Professor Steve Laddick on an earlier edition of Stay Tuned in Brief. This question comes in an email from Christopher, or actually it's a couple of questions. Christopher asks, after he is sentenced, could the 1-6 Select Committee subpoena Steve Bannon a second time for the same or different documents and to testify? Then also, if he declined, could the committee refer him to DOJ for contempt a second time? Or would this be double jeopardy? Well, these are interesting and clever questions, Christopher. I think as a general matter, I haven't researched it in any detail, but I think double jeopardy would clearly be an argument. If it's the case that Steve Bannon was prosecuted for, convicted of, and sentenced with refusal to cooperate with the subpoena relating to a certain set of documents and a certain kind of testimony after the fact of his conviction to prosecute him again, I think would not be a good use of judicial resources. It would not be in the interest of justice. It wouldn't be in good faith and wouldn't be principled. Remember, in order for a second prosecution to be brought in connection with a subpoena from the 1-6 committee, the 1-6 committee would have to go through that process, vote to hold him in contempt, and then make a referral to the Department of Justice. And the Department of Justice, in its discretion, would decide whether or not to prosecute a second time. And I can't imagine a circumstance in which, even if some of the documents and some of the testimony that was asked for was slightly different or deviated a little bit from the original request that resulted in a conviction, that the Department of Justice would proceed there. He's gotten a four-month sentence. Some people think that's too much. Some people think that's too light. I think it's a reasonable sentence. And that will stand, even though it's being appealed. And a second prosecution, I think, would be too clever by half and not proper. This question comes in an email from Jacob, who writes, Maggie Haberman and company at the Times reported that DOJ is ratcheting up pressure on Trump aides to testify in the Mar-a-Lago case. What does that say to you about the current stage of the investigation? Well, some good reporting from the New York Times, October 24th, in an article entitled, Prosecutors Pressure Trump Aides to Testify in Documents Case. What does it say to me about the current stage of the investigation? It says it's pretty advanced. As I've said for a number of weeks now, the question will soon be presented to Merrick Garland whether to go forward with a prosecution against Donald Trump in connection with the documents or not. I don't know what decision he'll make. I don't know every single consideration that there is. I haven't been in the grand jury myself. 
I don't know what exculpatory evidence there may be and equitable considerations not to bring a prosecution, but it seems to be a reasonable case and a decision is going to have to be made one way or another. And the fact that with respect to one or more of these witnesses, Walt Nauda and Cash Patel, that there are attempts to bring them in to testify a second time. We know that Kash Patel was not particularly forthcoming, invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in the last number of weeks in connection with a grand jury inquiry in the District of Columbia. And the fact that they're hammering away still suggests to me that they're trying to cross their T's, dot their I's, and figure out the full state of play, the full landscape, before making the fraught decision that I mentioned at the outset. Part of what's happening here is the DOJ is trying to figure out the best way to get the testimony that is not being voluntarily offered. Sometimes it's the case that you bring pressure to bear on one or more witnesses and they flip. Generally speaking, prosecutors, both in the DA's office and in other places, haven't had a lot of success in getting people to flip against the former president of the United States. The other option, which I'm sure they're considering, and it's a fraud option as well, is whether to give one or more witnesses immunity of some sort. Now, as the article itself points out, Quote, prosecutors loathe giving witnesses immunity, particularly in high-profile cases, because it makes it significantly more difficult to prosecute the individual who has received it, end quote. That's true. You don't want to give someone a buy, even if they're lower down in the totem pole, if they have culpability and responsibility also. So there's a lot to balance. There's a lot to consider. There's a lot of not just legal analysis that needs to be done, but as I've often said, psychological analysis that needs to be done. What are the levers you push? What are the carrots you offer? What are the sticks that you threaten with? And the Justice Department is thinking about all of that. But again, going back to your fundamental question, what does it say about the current stage of the investigation? I think it's quite advanced. I think it's not as complicated as issues relating to a decision about prosecution over the insurrection of January 6th. It's cleaner. It's clearer. It's more cut and dried. It's more cabined. And I think we'll hear about a decision not too long after the election. We'll be right back with my conversation with Al Franken. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Al Franken is a former U.S. Senator, Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, and author of multiple number one New York Times best-selling books. He's also been on tour, starring in a one-man stand-up show 
that mixes memoir with impressions and good-natured jabs at several of his former Senate colleagues. Al Franken, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Bree. First-time guest. That's right, but not first-time listener. So you listen, I see. I could quiz you, but I won't. Second-time listener. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. We are recording this on Tuesday, October 25th, yeah. two weeks away from the election. Why are the Democrats doing not as well as one might expect and hope? Why are the Democrats losing? Well, right now, we don't know exactly uh, what's happening. I'm afraid you may be right. Certainly, it looked better three weeks ago, right? But we don't know. We don't know. Then I don't trust polling. Uh, there's kind of no reason to, but, oh gosh, there's just a, a, a lot of reasons for that. I don't think we message great. You know, all our bumper stickers end with continued on next bumper sticker. <laughs> you know, and we're just not good at it. Do we repeat enough? Do we, do we say the same thing over and over enough? Well, they have simple messages and also the tend not to be true. <laughs> it's kind of easy from. It's a nice combination. Short and false. They're very disciplined about that. I do think that we're, you know, uh, I thought I was very good. <laughs> you were. When I was running and when I was in, in the Senate. And I think that, you know, you just have to, I, I, I just think that they, they craft messages too much. It, it's too much consultants. And it's, I, I just think that people have to speak like they're, it's from the heart and they're genuine. And they care. And, and so, so let, me give you, let me give you an example mm -hmm. that people have talked about. So on the issue of abortion, it would seem to be the case that Democrats have the upper hand because the Dobbs decision reversed Roe. And a lot of people care about reproductive rights. And there used to be a popular phrase. I don't know if it was coined by Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, but certainly it was around back in the 90s. And the message was abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. And there are folks on the left who said we shouldn't be saying rare anymore. What do you make of that kind of edit to general political opinions that have worked in the past? Yeah, I think safe, legal, and rare is, is right. And what that's about is like teaching <laughs> uh, contraception, birth control, and sex education in high school instead of teaching abstinence-only education, which leaves kids ill-prepared. And there's other ways to reduce the number of teen pregnancies, that kind of thing, unwanted pregnancies. For example, universal pre-K, early childhood education. Uh, the studies on that show tremendous return on investment. And one of those is that girls who have early childhood education are less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. Uh, that's just one of the, those things. They're more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to go to college, more likely to go to, uh, and this is boys and girls. Uh, less likely to go to prison, much less likely. Our message should be, <laughs> we should be talking about, and, and, and remember, universal pre-K was going to be part of Build Back Better. And uh, it was, inc it's incredibly popular. So my, so, so my frustration. Yeah, so okay, so, so, yeah, so your ahead. advice to Democrats is that they should be talking about what? Well, they should be talking about, you know, today, as we record this, is the 20th anniversary of Paul Wellstone's death. And Paul said something that I think is what we should be saying all the time, which is we all, we all do better when we all do better. That the country is stronger when there's a, a strong middle class. And these tremendous gaps in wealth and income, we, we need to address that. We need to tax 
very, very high income people more. And everyone, you know, the MAGA people in red states, they actually believe that too, right? Yeah, I think so. So look, you're making the argument that we should be talking about, as politicians say, kitchen table issues. Isn't that always true? Well, you should talk about kitchen table issues. Yes, always. And by the way, of course, of course, because inflation is is a real, very real, very uh, huge issue. I, I just did a fundraiser for Unite Here. D. Taylor is the head of Unite Here. Unite Here is the hospitality workers. And they do ground game. And my pack, Midwest Values Pack, always, we always donate heavily to uh, Unite Here. And they're on the ground now in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, and, and Arizona. They knocked on like over 4 million doors in 2020. And they're on the doors. So they're hearing what people are saying. And these hospitality workers, these are the people, you know, culinary workers, people work in stadiums and hotels, you know, those people. And they're, they're knocking on the doors of people in their economic bracket. And they're hearing what people are saying. And it's all, you know, rent and food and gas. So definitely need to address it. But I don't hear anything the Republicans are saying that addresses it other than... No, they're just saying it's not good. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty effective. It doesn't work. Yeah, it does. They're, and, uh, but, and they're doing this crime stuff, which is crazy. <laughs> how's, how's, that, so, how's, it, how's it crazy? The, the ads are crazy. Let me yeah. put it that way. My former judiciary counsel, Josh Riley, great, great, great guy, is running in the 19th in, for Congress. He's in like a dead heat against Republicans, a very, very purple district in upstate New York. He's from upstate New York. He grew up there. They ran an ad against him, which starts with some guy cold cocking some other guy in like this grainy footage. And it's all like, you know, cash bail thing. And it's, a, and it's like, Josh Riley, <laughs> you know, is, uh, wants to let the, his allies, he, they always say his allies and then uh, want to defund the police. And then they, and they run defund the police across, you know, the frame over his face. And he, he's never wanted to defund the police. When I was in the Senate, I passed crisis intervention training funding for police all over the country. And it was, I did it in a bipartisan way. Crisis intervention training is uh, teaching cops how to recognize when they're in a situation that's fueled by mental, mental illness or by drugs and how to deescalate. And there was no funding for it. It had expired years ago. And I, said, no, 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 we, we need to do this. And it saves lives and it does, it's all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. So, so you weren't for defund the police and it sounds like your former counsel wasn't for defund the police, but they're, they're. No, no, no. He worked, he, I'm sorry. He, he worked with Cornyn's guy. That's how you work, right? That's how you do yeah, something. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is how do you, do you lay any blame at the feet of progressives who did say and chant defund the police? In a way that it's being used fairly or not. Yeah, it was idiotic. And it was the Minneapolis City Council. It was the Minneapolis City Council. It was after George Floyd. And they chose that, defund the police. And, you know, we, we couldn't have, remember I said our bumper stickers? <laughs> Continued <laughs> always, on the other side. Yeah. Continue on the next bumper sticker? Well, they gave them a bumper sticker, which is defund the police, which is ridiculous. Right. It's reform the police. Do police reform. Do you think the average Democrat elected official understands the potency of the crime issue? I think they're beginning, I hope so. I hope they're beginning to, but you know, I mean, you can't, you can argue like here are the crime statistics versus 
you know, 10 years, whatever. It's these ads. And these ads, of course, it's dark money. So this is gets me into something I kind of want to talk about. Uh, if I could, yeah, please. which is that I worry that, you know, I've always kind of worried that we're going to have a tipping point. We're going to lose our democracy. And what I've been thinking about lately is that maybe we had the tipping point. Maybe, the, maybe we're past the tipping point. I was discussing this with Sheldon Whitehouse. Right. He has a book coming out. Who has this book about how they captured the court. And, and I'm, I'm reading the book. It's a very good book. And, you know, if you go back, Citizens United unleashed all this money, right? So that's why that's where these ads are from. It's no longer your campaign running the ads. All these horrible negative ads are just run by these groups that no one knows who where the money came from. And they're flooding the airways with these horrible, dishonest ads. And they can do it. Okay, so that's Citizens United. Then there's Shelby County. Uh, then there's uh, Merrick Garland and the court. I and then Trump. All right, let, let's let's talk about some of those things. Those things combined make me worry. I mean, when you have how dangerous is it that you have all these secretaries of state candidates in these states who are deniers? It's really dangerous. How dangerous is this North Carolina court case uh, that's at the uh, Supreme Court that? What's it called? The in, no independent the, state legislator doctrine. Or yeah, that thing, which is basically saying the state legislatures are, can't be overruled by judges on election stuff. Right? That's simplification of it. Essentially, that's horribly dangerous. Obviously, I I, I just worry that we uh, are descending into a very dangerous. Reality. So there are kind of two sets of things we're talking about. And I know you care about both of them. I care about both of them. One was this set of issues we were talking about at the outset, kitchen table issues, if you will, gas, inflation, everything else. And the other is basically democracy. And there's this crazy poll that I've been thinking about and talking about for the last week or two. Is this the 70% say yes. so they let me care just, and then only 7% say yeah, it's say it's, it, yeah. Yes. So just to repeat it for folks, they may have heard me talk about this before. You go ahead. Describe. 71%, it's a New York Times-Siena poll, and this just really kind of freaked me out. 71% of respondents in the poll said democracy itself is at risk. But of the people polled, as you point out, only 7% say it's their top issue. Right? <laughs> yes. Can you both as a smart politician and comedian explain that gap. Wow. I'm trying to figure out which smart. <laughs> How about as a smart comedian? Sure. <laughs> man, oh man. I mean, obviously people care about their pocketbooks. We just, you know, it's the economy. Stupid is like every, just always just, okay. Just that's every election, I guess. And especially when people are just very challenged economically. So, I guess that's it. So, okay, so what's the advice? So give, let's say, we, you know, you said before, we don't necessarily have reason to have faith in polls, and maybe this is an example of that, and we make, maybe we're making too much of it. But if it's true, and we credit it, what's the advice to politicians given that discrepancy? Should they spend any time at all talking about the insurrection and talking about democracy? Well, I think not? there's, right now, we're two weeks away, and there'll be less when this airs, but it's turnout. So... Part of it is less persuasion and more getting your people out. So that's why I still, I think democracy is a good way to get our people out Yeah, as an issue. 
And I think Roe is another. But yeah, we should have been talking about the middle class for, and, and we all do better when we all do better, that philosophy and how to do that. We should have been talking about that all the time for yeah. uh, the last uh, couple of years. All the so time. So Donald Trump is not on the ballot in 2022. Should Democrats be talking about Trump? Yep. Because that gets out the base and yep. turnout is important for that reason? Yep. What yep. About, how, how does talking about Trump, you think, hit the ears of independents? Well, I think that you know, what's scary about right now is that I'm, I don't know what percentage of Americans support Donald Trump, and it might be 30, 35%, something yeah, like that. that. That sounds right. But my fear is, is that that's enough. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, and that's enough I, for what? That's enough for what? That's enough for him to win the next election. Yeah. And, and for his people to win in 2022. Yeah. And uh, it's, it, you know, th this is what I'm saying. The tipping point may have already happened that I, I feel like we're going down a road that's very, very, it could get very, very ugly. I mean, if right. Trump won, it's all over, right? I mean, it's just kind of all over. It's very bad. I'm trying not to try to focus on. <laughs> I mean, if that the happens, immediate term, the immediate term, but and immediate term. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't but quite but, know because I have not done what you have done. I have not run for office. I have not served in an elected position. I'm trying to figure out by talking to smart people like yourself and others what is the right path for people on the Democratic side, given the state of affairs. You know, who care about democracy, who are horrified that we had an insurrection and a, and, a, and a coup, and we almost stopped, people tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power for the first time ever, and looking forward to 2024 when it's going to be a lot worse. This is like a, kind of an inflection point in the immediate term, and I wonder what kinds of lessons, it's another question to ask you, you know, suppose it does not go well, as a lot of people predict, and Democrats lose the House and or the Senate. Do you think the Democrats will get, do you think the Democrats will change how they campaign and what issues they talk about and what they propose. Will a lot of Democrats stay home after that because they'll think, well, what's the, I mean, I don't know. What, what, how do you think people are going to react if the midterms go bad? To me, a lot, but go back to Wellstone. You knew that he meant what he said. And that's what we need from, to be, to win. And as far as a, as a communicator, and he's not, much like Wellstone at all, I guess is Buddha judge, mm -hmm. which is at least <laughs> at least when he's talking, he's like he's thinking while he's talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Some politicians do that, but but if you're talking about meaning what the and I, I'm a fan of, of of Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete, who's been on the show. But as far as meaning what they say, whether or not you agree with the policies and the proposals, where do you rank Bernie Sanders on that scale? Well, he means what he says. Yeah. And I think he's right about a tremendous amount of this. I, I was against single payer in the last race because I think we would have lost terribly. And my reasoning for that was we won all these purple districts in 18. And it was because all of these people in suburbia and actually America learned what the ACA was when they tried to repeal it and realized, oh, my God, okay, they want to get rid of the, uh, you know, the protection. If you have a pre-existing condition, won't necessarily be protected. They wanted to get rid of Medicaid expansion. They wanted 23 million people lose their insurance. But if you think about where those districts, those purple districts, or those districts became that we converted, those people in suburbia were getting their health care through their employer, by and large, who was paying, I don't know, 65, 80% 
of their healthcare premiums and they like their health, they like their, their insurance. And the idea of, okay, we're going to replace that with single payer where you have, where there's no insurance. There's no private insurance. Every other developed country has universal health care, universal coverage, and private insurance. Yeah. So he was saying, Bernie was saying, get rid of all private insurance. Well, we would have gotten clobbered. So that was one area where, you know, I was, I was again, Buttigieg said, you know, single payer for everyone wants it, which would have been. Yeah, no, I, that was to make sense. So look, so Bernie is an example of somebody who means what he says, but you don't always want the thing that he wants. Well, that was one thing, but he's right about so much of the rest. I mean, we, we need to catch up with the rest of the developed world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be on uh, the Health Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, and we would have, you know, paid family leave. Every other country does that. Subsidized childcare. So, so why don't we? Because we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> we're all big fat idiots like Rush Limbaugh. Let, let me let me, let me talk about no, but it, like, I guess. It's popular. The other countries do it. It seems to go well. It's good policy. Okay, subsidized childcare. Let me just give you a statistic. The average European country subsidizes childcare $7,000 a year per child. We, 500 bucks. I mean, it's crazy. But the, but the dollar is very strong. <laughs> it ain't that. The, the, pound, <laughs> the pound didn't sink that low today. But you know, I think Herschel Walker would give that answer in a debate. No, he wouldn't. And he would get away with it. <laughs> That's too... <laughs> it's too it, clever it's even for not him. what he was told to say, so I don't think he would say that. <laughs> We're going to get into some of the particular races in a moment. But what, I, what I'm saying is people like that. People want childcare, And that means they can go work. Does the Republican base want that and want to pay for that? It depends which Republican base you're talking about. You know, 20% of them, that would be enough, wouldn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Look, look, the people in these red areas, they're the ones who rely on this stuff is more than, you know, people in, in a lot of people rely on this stuff in the city. But right. if you look at where federal money goes, the balance of it, it goes to them. <laughs> and yeah, they would like childcare. And it would give them flexibility to work. And right now we have a shortage of workers as part of inflation, right? Wages are just going up because we don't have enough people work to work, which is we can get into immigration, we can do other stuff too. But childcare would would so much help, just help that. Yeah, look, in this country, we don't get what the majority wants often. The polls with respect to how many people want universal background checks and closing the gun show loophole to pick a totally different topic. Top 70, 80, I think 85%. And that doesn't get done either. And again, that has to do with something to do with dark money. And it has to do with, you know, I, I really, I, I do talk to a number of my former colleagues and, and Republican colleagues too. And I'm just going like, why the hell do we need assault weapons? And, <laughs> you know, they're just afraid. They're just afraid of their voters. These are obviously in, in, in red states, but... Well, is that some somebody might listen to you say that and say, "Well, that's democracy." Well, it is, I guess. Representatives are are supposed to be. No, you shouldn't be afraid of your voters. Responsive to be, the voters. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, again, I'll do. I'll go back to Wellstone. Paul was in a dead heat with Norm Coleman in October of um, of uh, two two thousand two, and he had to vote on the Iraq War, 
And he was against the Iraq war. And he said to a number of his friends, including me, that I'm going to vote against it and that'll be the end of my career. Because a large majority of Minnesotans were for going to war. He voted against it. The next poll had him up by seven. And that's because people respect someone who believes in something. Well, now explain Liz Cheney. I couldn't believe that Liz Cheney lost by that much. And, th and that is, I think... That has to do with maybe things have changed a little since Paul did that in 2002. Yeah, no, a little bit. Which is the information universes are so drastically separate. And that's... Well, you've talked about two universes of information. What yeah. do you mean by that? Two universes of information? Well, it's exactly that. It's people get their information from where they choose to get. It's all divided up. And if you go on social media and if Facebook knows that you get... You like to get agitated. You, that keeps you on. <laughs> They'll send you something that'll further agitate you. And if you like, you know, right-wing MAGA bullshit, they'll uh, send you that. And, yeah, the idea that, that Facebook, the, the algorithms that they have are basically about keeping you on. They know more about you than anybody, than you know about you from all the choices you've made, right? So... That's what that's what the algorithm does. What will keep this person on the most? So the idea that, oh, we don't have any control over this shit is bullshit. And then there are all the other places that people get the information they choose. And part of it's fun. You remember I wrote a couple books, uh, Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. I, I have that book. Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them, The Fair and Balanced Look at the Right. And I was, this was, uh, the first one was in 94. Five, I think, yeah. And the second one was in 2003. And I was basically saying there's a lot of disinformation being put out there by the right, and it's very dangerous. And I don't know what's happened to that idea. And then, of course, you add social media onto that. Then you add sort of this uh, segmentation of our population. that People are, you know, red areas are getting redder, blue areas bluer. And it's part of the danger here because people are just told over and over again, the election was rigged, Trump really won, and they believe it. It's kind of a catch-22 or conundrum or some other related metaphor. Here's what I mean by that, right? So it's craziness. There's two universes of information. Outlandish lies get told and repeated. And I think people of good faith on the other side of the aisle, like you and me and others, want to call it out. And we get angry about it because we care about truth and we care about the country and we care about democracy. And here's what, here's what uh, I don't know if you remember this guy, Barack Obama said recently. He said, you know, so we, so we join that game and we spend enormous amounts of time and energy and resources pointing out the last crazy thing Trump said or how rude or mean some of these Republican candidates behaved. And that's probably not something that in the minds of most voters overrides their basic interests. Can I pay the rent? What are gas prices? How am I dealing with childcare? End quote. How do you how do we resolve that dilemma of being angry about lies on the and, and the lying liars who tell them to coin a phrase, and also understanding that people care about gas and inflation? You could do both. Yep. Yeah. Really? <laughs> you can. So, like in the mornings, you do one; in the evenings, you do the other, or you have different spokespeople depending on what their roles are in Congress. So, you have Benny. If you're running for office, you can talk about both, and you think that people should. Yeah. Not ignore no, the truth. I mean, stuff. I understand, you know, what it would do my ad on, that kind of stuff. But you should be you should be out there talking about this stuff. And look, because there are two universes of information, no matter what you say, 
the people in the other universe probably aren't going to hear it. That's the problem, right? <laughs> that's, that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, no, it is. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Al Franken after this. Let's talk about some particular races in the Senate mm -hmm. that people have their eyes on. And things may have shifted in the last few weeks. It's not clear what's yep. going to happen. Things can shift again. Mm -hmm. So let's let's pick, I want to talk about three of them quickly. Let's pick one. Let's pick Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Do you have a thought about that race and how it's going? Well, as we speak, I'm awaiting the debate tonight. And right, so that will have already happened by the time this right. airs. Right. But as we're speaking. So I think a lot, I, I can't imagine the pressure on Fetterman. You know, he's a genuine guy. Oz is, you know, a little bit of a snake Not oil salesman <laughs> and doesn't live in the state and has run a terrible campaign and yet is somewhat close. So I'm, but I think it's, it's stayed pretty solid, like Fetterman up a couple of points and that that's bode well, considering, especially that we've seen a trend, you know, the trend we've seen, but he still seems to be holding. I didn't really have my eye that much on that race. So I don't, I, I don't know McCormick that well, but I know that he was actually, you know, like an actual. Let's mm -hmm. talk about Georgia for a moment. And, I, and there's a lot, a lot of ink has been spilled mm -hmm. in commentary given about the closeness of the race between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Do you think the, the magic is gone for Democrats in Georgia? You know, it used to be that if you held a gun to your girlfriend's head, that was disqualifying for the Senate. Yeah, not anymore. I have to believe uh, if, if, if that can't happen, can it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think now any, anyone can get into any position because they have a backing of a particular wing of what has been known in the past as the Republican Party. That's my, that's my view. I liked what qualified for exceeding expectations in the debate. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think, that some politicians struggle, and did you struggle, with the dilemma of being positive on the one hand, and on the other hand, if your opponent is a maniac or radical in some way, going negative to distinguish? How do you think about that balance? Yeah, I mean, it depends what you're, you know, are you talking about, like, in a debate? Are you talking about... Yeah, so I'm talking about Warnock. The reason I'm thinking of it, because we were talking about Warnock and Herschel Walker, and some people said that Raphael Warnock could have been tougher on Walker. I think he could have been, but, yeah. you know, they game that out. That's the problem. I remember in 2008, I uh, when I ran against Coleman, I liked debate prep. I, I really did. And uh, I was eager to debate him. Then in 2014, when I ran for re-election, I hated it. And oh, why? <laughs> why is that? Part of it was I was ahead by so much. <laughs> and, and so it was like... And you're like, why be bothered? And I remember the president called me, uh, Obama called me, and just like, a day or two before my first debate. And he went like, how you doing? How's it going? I'm like, well, I'm ahead <laughs> on the ball. And, but I hate the friggin' debate prep. And he goes, oh yeah. And he said, it's like you're in a play and you have to learn your lines. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I just hated that. Now, part of it was I was, you know, my instructions were play error free ball or just don't, you know. But again, like Buttigieg, like in the debate, do you remember those, the presidential debates in 20 were just so horrible for on the Democratic side? Because we, we'd have, we had 20 candidates at, at one point. So you'd have 10, right? And then everyone was given like a minute to answer. And 
so the consultants would craft a minute 20 answer that they would say as fast as possible. <laughs> and, and after a minute 10, they would be interrupted, your minute's over, and then they'd finish the next 10 seconds of it. And it was every one of them except Buttigieg and uh, Yang, basically, by and large, hmm. were, were doing that. I mean, less Bernie, maybe, but it was exhausting. You remember how exhausting it was to listen to those? Look, I remember watching the 2016 Republican debates, and this might make some people annoyed, but I remember because I didn't think there was any chance that Donald Trump could win, so I didn't think and appreciate the threat that he posed to the country, not to mention, you know, potentially the world. I found him to be kind of comic relief. Oh, my God. When he called out the other people on the stage. He was a... Grade him on effectiveness in those debates in 2016, putting aside, you know, whatever you think about him otherwise. He, he, no one else had a chance. Did you think that at the time or is that in retrospect? I, I, and I meant in the Republican field. I, no, I didn't think it at first. And I thought that, uh, I, I know that they all said, I'll, I won't go after him. I'll be the last man standing. Or if I'm weak enough, I'll yeah. go after him <laughs> like Jindal or something like that. And then I'll get, I'll be gone right away because <laughs> he'll attack but there's a there's a comedian i wish i remember his name but he he talks about this who uh is at the comedy seller shoot I, I wish i remember his name but he does talk about how this was just not fair because <laughs> you know and and he says this gosh he, he says something he would just go your wife is ugly <laughs> after these guys would, would do some like public policy thing. and he would go and you would laugh and you'd go like and he's the only one who stood out. And then on top of that were the rallies, which, I mean, I talked yeah. during that, uh, during that, I campaigned for Hillary, of course. And I remember her being with her and Huma backstage or something. And she said, Oh, we watched the Trump rallies all the time. Cause they're hilarious. And, <laughs> and of course, you know, CNN just, man, if there was a Trump rally, they'd go to it. And, and so at MSM, they, yeah, people and, watched. And so there was no oxygen for anybody. Including else. fools like me. And, you know, he yeah. is, I've never seen the man laugh, Trump. No, we've talked about that. Yeah. I don't think anybody has. And, but he makes his audience laugh. Yeah. And he's like, he, I've compared him to a stand up comedian. He'd go up there and riff, he can just talk, right? And, uh, you know Jim Gaffigan? Do you know that comedian? Yeah, I do. And you know Hot Pockets? Yeah. Okay, to me, what Trump would go up there, and whatever people responded to, he'd keep it. And Build the Wall was his Hot Pockets. He just threw it out there. <laughs> they just yeah. went nuts and make Mexico pay for it. And that's how we got that policy. So he would just go up there <laughs> and just riff, which is no, talent. And, he, and he, that's a, a, he rejects stuff that doesn't work. Look, I, you know, we all do that. People who, who speak for a living, as I do, not as a comedian, but, you know, you want to be compelling and entertaining when you speak, even if you're speaking about something serious. You learn over time the things that work with an audience and the things that don't, which is exactly the, the manner in which comedians build an act, right? But you don't go up there when you give a speech, Preet, I don't imagine, and free associate for an hour. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I usually have some plan. I have a, <laughs> that's not been my way of handling sort of any professional. Man, Preet was all over the place, <laughs> but he. Uh... <laughs> Look, but people listen to what he's saying. I want to do a thought experiment with you because this came up when we were talking amongst ourselves at Cafe about your being on the show. And I think someone 
ask the question, you know, how would Al Franken debate Donald Trump? Can you do that thought experiment for us? Because I think it's, I think people underestimate the difficult, because people think, oh, you get someone really smart or someone really funny or someone really sharp. They're going to wipe the floor with Donald Trump, but he doesn't play by normal debate rules. How would you go about that? No, you just got to just do, I don't think fuck you is, it was wrong in a debate with him. Yeah. I mean, literally? Literally. At a certain point. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just, you got to go balls out, right? Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> apart from <laughs> FU, any, any other strategy, Al? That's it. <laughs> fuck you. And then I got that. You can, uh, I yield the rest Short of Short debate. Guy. You would, you would definitely come in under the. No, but I mean, you, sh you shouldn't, fuck you should be later in the debate <laughs> after you've exhausted some other stuff, but you just got to go like, okay. Uh, you're lying, and then tell why, and then no, and then you know, shut up. <laughs> it's good. I mean, uh, actually, uh, Biden did that, right? That first debate was pretty disastrous for Trump. I, I can't believe, still can't believe how how close the race was in certain ways. I mean, it's seven million votes, but still. Last Senate race I want to ask you about: J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan in Ohio. I think Ryan has run a very good race. Uh, Ohio is a very tough state for us. Do you think he's a model? Do you think Tim Ryan is a model for how Democrats should be or only in states like Ohio? Well, it depends what you mean a model. I, I, you know. Uh, well, he's kind of, you know, he, he a little bit avoids the culture wars. He talks like a person who you said earlier, you lauded this, means what he says. Mm -hmm. All that, all that, all that. Yes. He's like, he's like, yeah, I don't know what, you know, I don't know. And, and people don't like the way sometimes you describe folks and how they speak, but he's, you know, sort of regular guy. He bucks his party sometimes. Mm -hmm. He speaks about why he does that. I, he's run a, a really smart race for, in, in Ohio. And boy, I hope he wins that. And boy, is Vance, you know, is, is these people like Vance are really dangerous. Why is he dangerous? Because he knows better? Yeah. Because he's cynical. And all these, I mean, these power-hungry, cynical people, your Cruises, your Hawleys, they, they're scary. Herschel Walker, less scary. Unless you're his girlfriend. <laughs> Boy. Can we talk about your beginning time in the Senate? Before <laughs> sure. And, and tell me if I'm wrong about this. I worked for, for Senator Schumer for a number of years, and I was ending my tenure with him when you began in the Senate, once you were finally seated. You won by how many votes again? 312. 312. It's a lot. Of, hmm. It's pretty good. Clobbered. It's more than one. It was the narrowest clobbering in history. And I remember among our my peer group, everyone was very excited for you to come to the Senate for a lot of reasons. But among them, I've followed your career for a long time uh, and had your books, as I mentioned, long before you became a senator. And we were looking forward to your using your humor and, and wit and quickness on the Senate floor and in, and in hearings. But at the outset, I believe you chose not to do that, not to use what I don't consider be funny. to be that was what my team superpower. Said. Don't be funny. Yeah. So explain why they said that and how you feel about that in retrospect. Well, you know, I I won by three hundred twelve votes, <laughs> so I wanted to show the people of Minnesota that I was there to do the job. And my team said, "Don't be funny, <laughs> don't be funny." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I, I, okay." And I got to put my head. It's like you're distinguishing superpower. They said, "Do not use it." Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> because I just wanted to establish that I was there to do, because pe people thought I was there to be funny or something, and I wasn't. Right. Right. I was there to get stuff done. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I don't think my friends and I were suggesting. No, no, no. But I mean, it was stand a strategy. Up every hearing, but, you know, I yeah. also avoided national press. I just did yeah. Minnesota press. I would Keep your head down as the new guy. And do the work. 
I passed a bill two weeks in. Remember, I was delayed six months uh, from, yeah. and I'd done a lot of USO tours. So I was uh, friends with Paul Rykoff, the head of the A. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan Vets of America. So at the inaugural, I went to their dinner or their party and uh, met a, a veteran in a wheelchair who had a service dog. Uh, long story short, this, I was amazed by what the service dog could do for him. And so I spent the six months learning everything I could about service dogs. And my first bill, which I did with Johnny Isaacson, Republican of Georgia, uh, was to get fun, uh, funding to do a study matching 200 vets with PTSD with 200 dogs and see what the cost benefits are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 20 vets a day commit suicide. So it passed right away. And it, it was a three-year study that took 10 years because VA fucked up many times. But finally, and I was out of the Senate by the time the results came in, it was unbelievably uh, Cost benefits were unbelievable. The benefits were unbelievable. So now, then, so they passed the Pause Act. I'm very, very proud of that. I cried when I got the, when the results finally came in. So that's what I was there for. I was there to do that. I wasn't there to be funny. And you know, later, after I won, I you know I won very big in fourteen. I said to my team, "Okay, I can be funny now." And so <laughs> I, I, I remember okay? uh, when Obergefell came out. I, I wrote uh, the press release that I wanted to put out. So I got my communications uh, person and my chief of staff in, and I said, okay, here's what I want to say. Uh, Senator Al Franken, Democrat of Minnesota, applauded the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell today, uh, legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide, but called Justice Antonin Scalia's dissent, quote, very gay. <laughs> I missed that. I don't remember. And that. no, well, you missed it because they said, no, no. <laughs> I took it out. <laughs> and I went, come on. I just won by, you know, <laughs> over 200,000. And no. <laughs> well, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, my audiences, when I, the Al Franken, uh, it's, uh, I'm on tour. And I, I've paused my tour because I just got back surgery, but I'm going to be back. The uh, only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour. That's what I understand to be true. Yeah. But I'm a little surprised when I asked you the question. That, that I tell that story there. So you get to hear that. Yes. There. Okay. Um, so it's not exclusive for my audience. So No, so but they'll enjoy it, it when they see the tour. They'll go like, I heard that on pre- Maybe you want to amend your, your prior answer about the debate. So what I thought one of the things you might say is if it was Al Franken debating Donald Trump, one strategy would be to try to make jokes in a way that everyone laughs at Trump. Okay. Would that be part of the strategy? Well, you know, I could say, like, uh, Mr. President, I'm going to call you Mr. President because you were the president. But I think as, you know, one of the debate conditions for the debate that I had was a wind machine. <laughs> it causes cancer. <laughs> but you rejected that. And I, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. I would, yeah, I would give him complete shit. But, you know, it's also... He is just the most vile human being in the, in the world. And I think that you yeah, should establish that. But he got elected to the presidency. Well. Yeah. Do you think most politicians are correct to avoid humor because they screw it up? No. Well, yes, because they're not good. Because <laughs> they're not funny. You know who's funny? The funniest, uh, I had to say, the Ooh, funniest colleague. I was going to ask you. And people hate me when I say this. Lindsay. Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Lindsey Graham's, you know, I know people have a view of him now. Yeah, well, it's I'm, it's absurd what he's done, but I'll, I'll give you a, a couple, let's see. So, you know, we're going on uh, this last session before Christmas break, and we're going, going and he goes like, you, you ta- you're taking your family anywhere for sun? And I said, uh, yeah, actually, we're going to Vieques, which is in Puerto Rico. And he goes, without hesitation, he says, do two fundraisers, one for the people of four statehood, one for the people who are against statehood. They never talk to each other. <laughs> and he just had that at the ready. And all his jokes really were about how cynical he is. So, I, you know, I'm not that surprised <laughs> how cynical he is. But and I remember when he was running for president, I was in the Senate bathroom. And I say, I say to him, uh, Lindsay, if I were voting in the Republican primary, I'd vote for you. And he went, that's my problem. <laughs> Yeah. So he That's, he's funny, um, but not you know. Uh, Amy gets off one every once in a while. Uh, Klobuchar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Was John McCain funny? He was funny. It's pretty funny, right? I'll tell you a story. Um, so after the thumbs down, yeah. Uh, McCain. Um, I was afraid I was going to see him. He was going back to Arizona. I was afraid I was going to see him again because of the the brain tumor. Uh, can't and. Uh, so I said to him, John, I'm going to write you a bad news, good news joke every week. So he said, okay. So Ron Johnson went back to Wisconsin and said on a Wisconsin radio show, well, the reason he put the thumbs down was he was he's addled by his brain cancer. <laughs> so that's Ron Johnson. And so my first bad news, good news joke was uh, for to John was, uh, the bad news is you have brain cancer. The good news is that Ron Johnson's ass cancer has moved to his mouth. God. So John did come back. I didn't see him again. And when he came back, he he walks in and he sees me across the chamber. And he points at me and goes, that man earned every dollar he ever made, not here, but at Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so he was funny. He was also could be had a temper and, <laughs> and uh yeah no i got to know mccain a little bit when i was in the senate as a staffer mm-hmm. and um he had a range of emotional reactions to things yep. uh, but he was very real very real, real guy. very real and loved and, lo- and loved his country i mean you know um yeah i gotta ask you since you mentioned it is is saturday night live still funny well you know um I did the first five years of SNL, then I left for five and came back for 10, right? So the second season, the first show of the second season, we do the show. I go up to 17 and the phone's ringing and like an idiot, I answer it. And somebody goes, well, the show's terrible. It's over. (laughs) Season two. (laughs) So we've been hearing Saturday Night Dead since like the second season. You know, I don't watch so it. You're defending that, the, the quality of humor in, in recent years? Uh, I'm not doing that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. But, you know, there's always, well, there's usually, sometimes something good. <laughs> and, you know, I also I do feel old uh, when I watch it. Although I, when we did the show, you know, again, those years, I didn't feel like we uh, did stuff for any generation at all. I did. We, we were the, I mean, obviously the first baby boomers to be on TV, right? Or to have that. So, you know, th- that group. And so we had a, obviously a different sensibility. 
Also, then, you have to understand that at that time, there were three networks, right? And so everybody was kind of culturally experienced the same stuff. And so some... Yeah, but like these, no, even though it's 2022, there's there's really not a lot of comedy competition. There's none. At that hour. There's none. On Saturday night. I find that interesting. Well, there's, there's none. There's no other variety, you know, sketch I mean, show. You, you go to Other than, Netflix I think there's, a, you, there's yeah. a sketch show on uh, a, a black women... Uh, uh, who do sketch comedy on HBO. Yeah. Uh, good show. And, but no, there's just, I mean, that was a great thing about doing a, a live show on Saturday night. If something happened that week, we could do it. Right. And I wrote a lot of the political satire with other people, Jim Downey, especially who uh, Jim is, is kind of a conservative. And we always felt it wasn't our job to, be partisan. We felt it was our job to do well-observed satire and to reward people for knowing stuff, but but not punish them for not. And I feel sometimes it's the opposite now when I watch. Yeah, and make the people laugh. Yeah, well, of course that was make the people laugh. I I find myself laughing a little less. Well, that's always, of course, <laughs> the uh, it's a com- it was a comedy show, and except during the music, we didn't want people to laugh. But no, no, that was the goal. It was to be funny. And, and you know, very proud of those years that I did. And um, just best, you know, it, people ask me a lot, like, what is your, like, favorite memory from SNL years? And it would be three in the morning, Wednesday morning, when we're writing the show, read-throughs on Wednesday, and just rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah, and you knew, and you knew you had a winner. That's true. That's part of the joy of it. It's like, oh, I did my job. Yeah. You know, this is really funny. And but I've worked with so many hilarious, brilliant people in those years, and um, you know, and then the Senate experience was was different. So, will you run again? I get asked that all the time. Yeah, I wasn't going to ask it because everyone asks you, but then I figured I should ask. Well, I, I, you know, I guess uh, I'm keeping my options open. That's what I say. So that's a yes. No, that's a uh, <laughs> keeping my options open. <laughs> that's what it. It literally means what it says. <laughs> when you first left the Senate, under those circumstances, and if you want to say something about that, feel free. I I deserve did you, due did process. You think that, I think it was a, okay. Uh, it was very, you know, I I just. If you had to do it over again, you would not resign. No, but it was. It, it, someday I'll tell the whole story. It was. I was kind of given no choice. Do you want to come back here and tell the whole story? No. <laughs> Honesty. But but did, did you think then that you were done with politics? In other words, how recently? I was in shock. Have you? Yeah. In total shock. I, I couldn't read the Jane Mayer article, which isn't. I did. I've read it. Yeah, I've read it. I mean, she was lying. You know. I mean. <laughs> who would you want to primary? Who, who who would you want to run against? Who would I want to run against? I don't know. No, I'd, I'd run not to run against someone. I'd run to go back and do the work I was doing and, you know, and uh, try to get early childhood education and try to get, you know, the uh, child tax credit extended and, you know, that stuff. That's what I would, that's why I would go back. No, those are good reasons. Yep. 
Well, it's nice to talk to you, sir. Great to talk to you. And and maybe um, you're not just former Senator Al Franken, but also future Senator Al Franken. We'll have to wait and see. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Bree. My conversation with Al Franken continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to share with you a story I came across that really struck me. It's the story of Moyen Island, a small island in the Seychelles, which is an archipelago off of East Africa in the Indian Ocean. As the BBC reported, an Englishman by the name of Brendan Grimshaw purchased Moyen Island in 1962 while he was on vacation in the area. He was a newspaper editor in Kenya at a time when many East African countries were declaring independence from British colonial control. So sensing the industry would change, he made a career pivot. He dreamed of owning land in the area, and so he bought the island for 8,000 euros, which is about $10,000 at the time. Grimshaw was fearful that in a matter of years, developers would buy the island and turn it into a tourist attraction. So instead, with the help of local friends, Grimshaw set out to clear the island of its weeds and overgrowth and restore the native biodiversity that once inhabited the island before tourists came to the Seychelles. And he was right. According to the BBC article, as tourism on the islands grew in the 1980s, investors saw Grimshaw's Moyen as potential for development. He received offers of up to $50 million for the land, the land he had bought for $10,000, but he refused every single time. Grimshaw dedicated his life to Moyen, to bringing back the trees and the birds and the tortoises and the life that once occupied all of the Seychelles. He moved there permanently in 1972 and over time had water, electricity, and a phone line set up. But he wanted the island to be more than just about him and his goals. He wanted it to outlive him. So in 2009, he signed an agreement with the Seychelles Ministry of Environment to turn Moyen into a protected national park. And with that agreement, it became the world's smallest national park at just a quarter of a mile long and under 0.2 miles wide. Quoted in the article at Isabel Ravinia from the Seychelles National Parks Authority, she said, quote, he gave the island back to the country, which was a noble thing to do. Normally, people would try to sell off the island before they die so they can obtain money to do something else. Instead, he did something incredible, end quote. Sadly, Brendan Grimshaw died in 2012 and was buried on his beloved Moyen Island. And just like he wanted, the land and its inhabitants live on. They are visited by no more than 300 people over the course of a day, even during peak tourist season. But the land is restored, safe, and protected. Grimshaw's story shows us how much impact one person can have on the land and on a community. He wasn't in it for the investment or the money. In fact, just the opposite. And in a world with so much greed and destruction, stories like this shine just a little brighter. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Al Franken. 
If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.